Now I'm really happy to welcome tonight's moderator, Mr. Christopher Hawthorne. Christopher Hawthorne has been the architecture critic for the Los Angeles Times since 2004. Previously, he was architecture critic for Slate and a frequent contributor to the New York Times and many other publications. He's the co-author of The Green House, New Directions in Sustainable Architecture. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Christopher Hawthorne. First, a big thanks to Gregory, Joe Matthews, everybody at Zocalo, as well as everybody at the Music Center for putting this event together. Um, uh, we are joined by four architects, planners, designers of one kind or another who work, live, like many of you downtown and or have been working on a number of projects downtown, including Grand Park, where we're all gathered um, this evening. So let me do some quick um, bios of our panelists, and then we'll jump right into the conversation, which will probably be 35 or 40 minutes or so, and then we'll save some time for questions from the audience and a little bit of Q&A, because I think this topic particularly, given how many of you live and work downtown, I know that you have some, uh, some thoughts, some questions about the future of this neighborhood um, and this park in particular. So um, on my immediate, immediate left is Alice Kim, a partner in the downtown LA architecture firm, John Friedman, Alice Kim Architects. She's also director of undergraduate programs at USC School of Architecture. Uh, her firm is the designer of the new Lacretz Innovation Campus, a clean technology hub that will be located in the Artist District, um, which will form the first anchor point of the Los Angeles Clean Tech Corridor. She's also, uh, she told me, working on a park in that part of downtown by Earth Cafe, and I'm curious to hear her thoughts about um, how that part of downtown is shaping up. Um, Next to Alice is Tony Paradowski, uh, who comes to us from Rios Clemente Hale Studios, uh, the designers of Grand Park, where he has been leading design projects since 2000. He's played a significant role in a number of urban landscape projects in downtown LA and beyond, including Staples Center, LA Live, and for the past seven years, this park where we're all sitting tonight, he led the design effort for Grand Park, in fact, from the earliest stages of programming and design through construction, and where I think I'm really eager to hear from him about not only the, the design specifics of this park, but also some of the complexities of working with this multi-headed group of clients and, and getting this park not just designed, but opened. Um, next to Tony is Melanie Smith, uh, Director of Planning and Urban Design at Melendrez. Um, a landscape architecture, urban planning, and urban design firm whose work most of you, I think, will be familiar with. She led the consulting team developing a streetscape master plan for downtown's historic Broadway theater district and is also leading the design of the Figueroa Corridor streetscape project, um, which will link South Los Angeles to downtown and will include LA's first uh, separated bicycle lanes, um, which will be a real achievement when we get those. Um, I think it's Long Beach is the only city in Southern California to have fully protected bike lanes in LA. Um, we'll be looking forward to when LA can claim that as well. Finally, Hernan Diaz Alonso, uh, architect, principal, and founder of the LA-based design practice. Uh, Zafira Tarch, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I said to Hernan, I think it's sort of the point is that it's unpronounceable, the name of his firm. Um, he's also the chair of graduate programs at SciArc, um, where he previously served as distinguished professor of architecture and the graduate thesis coordinator. Um, his architecture designs have received numerous awards and have been displayed in exhibitions and museums, including 
um, New York MoMA, San Francisco MoMA, and the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, and he really is all over the place. I saw him speak most recently uh, in Venice at the Architecture Biennale, um, where he gave uh, a lecture at the, the Czech Pavilion, of all places. Um, and it's really great to have Hernan here um, as well. So before we um, get into the discussion, I want to talk briefly about downtown and maybe give the world's shortest history of downtown Los Angeles. Um, you know, we debate all the time whether downtown can really be the center of Los Angeles or whether that's even the right question to be asking in a city and a region um, uh, as, as big as Los Angeles and Southern California. But I think most historians would agree there was a brief period when LA, when downtown LA really did serve that function in the teens and 20s when a lot of the buildings in the historic core were built. Um, it, it really did feel, at least for a few years, like the center of the city and maybe it was the victim of its, uh, its own success and the congestion um, and really the competition between uh, cars, that newfangled invention and, and uh, streetcars in particular in the 20s really began to um, drive people out of downtown and think about a, a different way of organizing the city and that of course led to developments along Wilshire Boulevard and this idea along Wilshire of a kind of linear downtown and the idea that for a city like Los Angeles, a, a horizontal, a fairly young city at that point, maybe that kind of linear downtown made more sense. Um, and then the idea of this of Los Angeles really being multipolar um, and not really needing a single downtown the way that traditional cities had needed them, I think began to take hold. Um, and so by the time Rainer Banham, the famous um, British architectural critic and historian, came to Los Angeles in the late 1960s, um, to study LA, and by the time he published his his, uh, his seminal book on Los Angeles, The Architecture of Four Ecologies in 1971, he was really uh, disparaging of Los Angeles like a lot of observers. And this is coming from Banham, who was a real fan of Los Angeles, a real champion of the particular kind of urbanism that could be found here in the 60s and 70s. And so in his book, The Architecture of Four Ecologies, he sort of tacked on to the end of the book what he called a brief note on downtown, quickly adding, because that's all it deserves. Um, and I think that sort of summed up the feelings at that period that it was really... Um, if it had been a center, it was a sort of forgotten one by that point. And, and certainly uh, by the time I got to Los Angeles in 2004 to start working at the Times, uh, downtown still really felt um, pretty quiet, pretty empty. It was tough to even find a place to get a cup of coffee after, after 5 or 6 um, p.m. Um, and then the revival of downtown that we've all heard so much about really began to accelerate um, in those years after 2004, 2005, 2006, as the economy really boomed. Um, and that's when we again started to have this question about what role did down pl downtown play in the larger city? What role should it, um, what role should it play? Um, and so now we're in the midst of a, a real revival that I think has reached a kind of tipping point in terms of the residential population downtown, but also one that's been stalled to a certain extent by um, by the recession and by the economic downturn. And so I think downtown finds itself in a, a really interesting uh, uh, position at the moment. So um, a couple of ideas I will quickly throw out before we turn to the panelists about downtown and about those issues. One is, first of all, just to, to state the obvious and say that there are many downtowns. It's not a singular neighborhood. There, there's, there's Bunker Hill, there's uh, the Civic Center, the Historic Core, the Arts District. Um, a number of other neighborhoods. It's been fascinating to watch how Spring Street has begun to thrive just in the last couple of years. And I think the, uh, also the southern end of Broadway is really poised for 
um, quite a boom in the next couple of years. So that's the first point, that there are many downtowns and we shouldn't talk about uh, this one monolithic idea of downtown LA. And then the second one is that, perhaps connected to that idea, is that as this revival, this renaissance of downtown has happened, um, I would argue that the parts of downtown that have thrived the most over the last few years are precisely the ones that have given up on the idea of being uh, central to the whole region, have kind of not uh, tried to shoulder that burden. And so it's the smaller neighborhoods that have grown in a more organic way rather than trying to be um, uh, the very center of this great uh, big region of ours um, that have seen the most significant changes and, and um, have the most uh, momentum, arguably. Um, again, thinking of, of, uh, of Spring Street, the Arts District, again, parts of, um, parts of Broadway. Um, so I want to ask, given the panelists' um, uh, experience living, working here, doing a number of projects here, I want to ask them to start by telling us about their downtown, what their experience is, where they live and work, the projects that they're working on, and, and what that perspective has given them about how downtown has changed in the last few years. So why don't we start with Alice? Um, hello, everyone. Um, my office is a 15-person office, and we're located at the corner of Alameda and 3rd. So we're kind of at the um, junction between the Artist District and Little Tokyo. And we've actually been there since uh, 2000, 2000, the end of 2000. So we've really seen that area of downtown grow and take hold, and lots of residences have gone up. The lofts in that industrial area have um, come to life. And so that's been really exciting. And we, my, my partner is also my husband. We have three children, and we live in Silver Lake. So the commute is very um, um, convenient. We ha are currently working, I think, as Chris said, on this Lacretz Innovation Campus, which does include a new half-acre park. And that is um, part of the Artist District. And um, uh, it's, uh, we've been working in downtown or around downtown since 2005 or so. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, yeah, uh, the office I work with, Rios Comenta Hill Studios, has uh, we, we were involved in a number of downtown projects um, from uh, uh, LA Live, uh, the California Endowment. We're kind of marking uh, different different areas uh, of downtown, the, and a number of projects nearby the Colborne School. Um, I've been working on this project uh, for the past six and a half, almost seven years. Uh, so it's given me, you know, really great opportunity to be involved downtown uh, and really gain better knowledge of everything that's happening down here. And, and through that process, from, from the beginning, our first community meetings, uh, our first community uh, workshop is really here on the Court of Flags, just the next block down. And um, from that, uh, meeting some, some initial downtown residents, people interested in, in what happens downtown and what happens with the park, uh, continuing that process through that whole almost six years, um, up about, well, about four and a half years up until construction, but right down to really construction until we made changes uh, really right up to the last minute that incorporated ideas from people in this community. And can, before we go to Melanie, can you tell us just a little bit about the specifics of that? How did the neighborhood demographics change? How did the comments and expectations that people at those community meetings had, um, how did those things change as the process went on with the design of the park? Um, you know, at first, uh, people were really just interested to see something happen with this space, I think, um, anything really. And then as time progressed, really, people started to take more ownership of the space and really, really realized that um, it was their park as a kind of neighborhood park. And one of the things that happened later on, I remember the first community meeting, there was, there was somebody, and I don't know if you're here tonight, but um, 
somebody who was frustrated with our process or the process with her her team. They were making models about what would be in the park, and she wanted a dog park, and nobody else wanted a dog park at the time. And so she left, and she made this whole uh, dog park. The whole park was a dog park, four blocks, and it was great. And at first, you know, we thought, I don't know if it's really the place for a dog park. But later, after we met with uh, more and more community meetings, we had an open house uh, with the downtown LA neighborhood council. And at that time, it really became an issue. As more people live down here, there's, there are more people, dog conflicts, more people with dogs that are happy to have dogs, more people who um, may not want the dogs around but really want an uh, answer to how people and dogs will occupy the same space. So you know, that really evolved, and, and those kind of things happened, and we were able to incorporate it. So that was great. Terrific. Melanie. Hi, everyone. Um, our office is in the Oviat building right near Pershing Square. So uh, that's where I live every day. And I've had, as Christopher said, had the opportunity really to work on Broadway um, for a couple of few years. And um, one of the things I realized in that project was, um, you know, so many of you raised your hands talking about living in, living in Los Angeles. And I think it was such an eye-opening, great experience for me in working on that project first time I had the chance to work with owners in downtown and this group of people who were so committed um, and felt like this place could still change and they could be a part of it. So it was a different kind of, um, it was a different kind of feeling than, uh, than other projects I'd worked on. Um, so that was really great. We're, we're working on the Fig Corridor now. And so I guess downtown to me feels sort of really big um, because for me, downtown and, and, and the, the linkages to downtown, um, you know, are going all the way down to USC and Expo Park. And I think that has to be a part of the greater downtown. Um, but I guess for me, downtown is also really old because I'm a fourth generation Angelino and my great grandmother came to downtown in 1905. And uh, so the Chinatown, Solano Avenue, uh, the what they you know refer to as the sort of European ghetto that's 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 my it's a big part of my downtown too and it always will be so that over over the freeway over the 110 over the 101 um, is part of my downtown uh, as well Hernan um, well <clears throat> I think I've been in downtown LA since 1981 when I saw Blade Runner and when we moved in 2001, it was great. And now it's disappointing because it's becoming this clean and civilized place. Um, and where were you when you saw Blade Runner and how old? Tell us. I was in Rosario, Argentina, which was a much more ideal city than L.A. <laughs> um, but uh, no, now we live in Molino, in the Molino Loft. Uh, my office is right after the F 4th Street Bridge. Um, that's my, the office of my, uh, my practice. And I am not working in any kind of design project in downtown, but I work in SIARC. I'm, I'm the graduate chair there, which is a massive downtown project in every day. And it has been, in one way or another, the agent that I live there and I have my office there. I mean, before SIARC, all that area was not part of it. But I live in, a, in downtown Lake since 2001. I used to live on 4th and Main, uh, when it was way more Blade Runner than it is right now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I agree with you, with your idea that uh, there's many downtown LA's at the same way there are many LA's. Um, but uh, I think that's the charm. I mean, somebody was asking me today, what is your favorite thing about LA? And I said, my favorite thing about LA, I cannot point a favorite thing. And that, to me, is the best sign of a contemporary city, because when we moved to Fort and Maine, the only reason why we want to move there, except that it was close to Syark and 
we didn't have money for two cars, so it was part of it. But also because it looked closer to New York, because we were living in New York. And I was so afraid to become an Angelino. I wanted to hold that to that New Yorker part. And now I think how wrong I was. I mean, I will not go back to New York for all the money in the world. But uh, it's, it's kind of those alliances that I think it makes um, LA and downtown LA so peculiarly unique. Right. This idea that they change from one block to another one and you cannot define it. And, and as a parent, tell us about how your attitude has changed and think, thinking about being here in the future or just having a child now and living down here. Um, my, yeah, my daughter is three years and a half and we have another on the way and I would not choose any other place to live because I want my daughter to grow up in a place and she understands that the world is complex, that society has many, many layers and it's not one-sided. So we love that idea about downtown. And actually, I hope that downtown increased the density three or four times because I think big, dense cities produce better people and better societies. It produces better... To- it's, people are more tolerant. People tend to be less racist, less homophobic, all of those things. And if we think about more and more, some of the most extreme ideas, they always come from a small town. So I'm always very suspicious of small towns. And I like big cities, and I like big density cities. And I think... It's a much more interesting place for your kids to grow up, understanding the complexity of the world, and don't be afraid of those things. Right. Even though you have to educate them and you have, they have to learn. And for me, it's important she understand that they're homeless, they understand that they are industry, they understand that there's traffic, that there's danger, that life is not as simple as it is, and it's not tip-top. Uh, I'd rather that she's confronted with all the perversions early on and know when they go to college. Uh, which seems like a much worse right. idea. And we're going to need some more schools down, downtown, though, aren't we, if you're going to be... Yeah, that, that's a major problem, because driving her to Pasadena every day is painful. Right, well, that's one of the issues I hope we can get into. And, and let me um, turn this question right back to you, Hernan. Um, I, I actually like the fact that the title of this panel is a question, because it suggests some doubt about downtown and the fact that we're really not maybe we have some doubt or we're really not pleased with where things stand. And I think that's a healthy thing rather than patting ourselves on the back for this kind of renaissance that we've seen in downtown that we've all heard so much about. So let me turn a version of that question to all of you and start with Hernan. And that is to say, what would it mean, what would it mean for downtown to work? How do we define success in this strange landscape that's uh, full of so many different little pockets and, and, and small neighborhoods with very different personalities? I will say first, very clearly, I think that towns already works. I mean, this idea that it, will, it may work, no, it does work. Now, the question, is that enough? No. I mean, it, it could be better, yes. And I think, to me, again, I, I will say any project that increases density and doesn't operate against density will be the first starting point. Any, any attempt to give like a suburbia quality to downtown, I, I would argue is a mistake. Uh, I was I was mentioning that, I mean, even though I think this is the Rift Park and so on, it always puzzled me about downtown LA. We have these gigantic spaces for a density that doesn't seem to be there. So either we start to make smaller public spaces or let's increase the density. But one of the, I mean, something has to give. So my, my, my hope for downtown is that we add more layers, that we add more layers of complexity, that we can have public schools that they are they're good and there are people are not afraid to send their kids in a school in a school in downtown. I, I hope that we can get all this museum politics and so on to work so these things finally take off. Um, I hope that the commerce keep getting better. So I, I will say I, I hope that downtown double up on what it has. 
But I would say right now it works. This idea that it, w- it might work, no, I think it's working. And I think it's up to us um, to figure it out that people also, it's not about to provide a lot of more infrastructure. It's about to create the conditions of life that people doesn't feel that they need to be commuting all the time. Like, I live my life in a 10-minute radius, and I love it. I, I can go back and have lunch with my daughter every day, and I live a very busy life. But because my office, Sire, my home is four blocks away, I, I live a very privileged life. And I think downtown offers you all that. And I think if we, keep, uh, if we keep pushing in that direction, I think it's terrific. I take my daughter to the park in downtown. I have lunch in, par- in downtown. I even have movie theater now in downtown, which is the most important thing for me in the last five years, that we have a multiplex. So I don't need to drive to Hollywood to see a movie. I love that. So I really don't think it's, it's, not, it's about Mario working or not. It's the question is how we use that as a laboratory, as a model about what a downtown is, and how we're going to reshape the model of the American city has been done in the last 40 years in detriment of downtowns and pushing into the suburban model. I think that model is done. It's obsolete. It doesn't work anymore. So I hope downtown LA becomes a laboratory for that, and then it can go to Houston, to Dallas, to and so on and so forth. Right, right. I think this question of scale that you bring up in these kind of overscaled spaces that are so common, particularly in Bunker Hill, is a really crucial question because uh, in the parts of downtown that were really uh, changed during the urban renewal um, you know, phase, we have these giant mega blocks and we really haven't been able to change them in an incremental way. This is one of the big problems in, um, you know, major parts of major swaths of, uh, of Bunker Hill and other parts of downtown where it becomes a kind of all or nothing proposition. Either we raise the money and the financing and the capital to do a huge mega project or the, or the, uh, or that mega block stays undeveloped. As you can see in the, the parcel where the federal courthouse is supposed to go, as you can see in the space across from Walt Disney Concert Hall where the so-called erector set parking garage, which was supposed to be temporary and built in 1969, is still hanging on into 2012. Um, so that's a really key question that we have these kind of overscaled spaces. And then um, for designers, for planners, for, for po- politicians, the question is how to break that scale down and begin to fill in little more incrementally. But same, Melanie, same question to you. What would it mean for downtown to work, to succeed? Before I get to that, I'll just follow on from what you said a little bit. I think at least, at least we have the beginnings of um, some level of guidance uh, for when we do get these redevelopment projects. And I won't say redevelopment with the big R, but with a small R, whatever we do in the future. Um, we at least have the downtown design guide, downtown street standards, which were an effort to take us in a new direction in downtown, and we never even had that. Um, so we have this ability to develop projects that think about the human scale, that think about connectivity through blocks, um, that, that think about streets in a new way, you know, more complete streets, greener streets. So I think at least there's, I'm, I'm glad we've got that going for us now. But in terms of, yeah, what would make this, uh, I think downtown's working as well. I think that I know what won't work, and what won't work is if downtown stops changing, right, and stops evolving, because downtown's evolved, you know, over, over generations, it will continue to evolve. Um, what, I, what I think will continue to enhance it is uh, a greater level of connectivity um, between, the, the, between the different downtowns. Um, uh, you know, I left my office at 435, the Oviop building, and I thought, I'm going to jump on the dash, and I'm going to just run up here. And I waited 20 minutes for the dash, you know? And it's just so annoying, right? Um, and it's, you can just practically reach out and touch it, you know? 
and, and it took me forever to get here. Um, so, you know, that level of connectivity, I think the idea of bringing back a streetcar is a great idea. Um, what, what we can do to, to, to make this n- circulation between the neighborhoods a lot stronger, can, I think, is really important. Can you tell us a little bit more about the streetcar project, where it stands? So, right, so the streetcar, there is, it's under environmental review right now. There is a locally preferred alternative. And, and this is along Broadway. It's more than Broadway. Yep. So it starts up here on Bunker Hill. It goes across second, and then it goes to Broadway. Um, so it, it connects in with the regional connector, the, um, which is going to connect really the whole of the county. Um, but it's going to come down Broadway. It'll go over uh, 11th, and then it'll go back up Fig for about... Um, just a couple blocks and it'll go back over 9th, 7th, 7th to uh, Olive Hill. <laughs> hill and then back up hill, um, up, under the, up, up under the hill. So, um, so I mean, I think that's a, a, you know, back to the future kind of solution that uh, is exciting. It's in environmental review. It's certainly not funded, but uh, there's a lot of momentum and a lot of different stakeholders um, that, have, that have come together to support, you know, from, from community groups to to uh, developers, to, to, to owners, building owners. So I think that's what's one thing. So connectivity is what you would what you would nominate as the most important idea. Tony, what what, what about for you? What, what would it mean for downtown to really work? Um, this is going to be kind of additive because I definitely agree down the line. I agree uh, downtown is, is working now and that um, it's getting more and more successful with each project, uh, each kind of new connection that, that arrives down here. Um, one thing does it matter? Sorry to interrupt. Does it matter that it feel like the center of of, of LA of the region? Is that? Is I don't that think a, so. Not I mean, the, I, the, the the idea that there's multiple centers uh, throughout LA and even multiple centers within the downtown area itself is really, I think, just part of our LA culture. I mean, that's that's the way it is. Things grow up. Um, part of our idea with the park was really um, to make the park a destination, so that we would we would be bringing people from all over and it was a county project so so part of the idea was really to engage the entire county um, but really make it an opportunity for people from all over the county to come and enjoy the space um, aside from that we also saw it really as uh, as, as the neighborhood place that I described but also as part of a, a downtown urban green network I mean it's it's one piece of a, of a puzzle that that can be connected to Vista Hermosa down First Street um, to the cornfields and beyond that to the LA River, you know, down Spring to Pershing Square and beyond that to South Park. So really it's kind of a, a piece in between all of these and, and, and starting to connect to the various neighborhoods around it. I think that's kind of an added on to the, the I, I love the idea of the streetcar and I think that's just going to be this fixed rail piece that's going to make everything seem uh, more connected because everybody knows where it goes and when it runs there. Sorry. Alice. Um, three years ago, we had an opportunity, which for reasons I won't get into, we could not take up, but we had the opportunity to actually move our family downtown and um, kind of create a live-work situation downtown. And we did not even hesitate in our minds for one second. And so I think that, to me, looking back, um, sort of says that to us, downtown absolutely works. This is where we've chosen to work. We've worked here for 10, 12 years now, going on 12 years. And so um, I think that for me, it really gets back to what Hernan was talking about in terms of density, which is really 
the only way cities can be sustainable in our future, the kind of foreseeable future. The two things that we were a little bit doubtful about, but we chose to kind of um, have faith that they would evolve and happen, was green space, what Tony is talking about, and the schools issue, um, which I think Ernan touched upon as well. So I know that there are movements in the works right now with charter school um, developments and um, even the park, the little half-acre park that we're working on for the Arts District. I think those kinds of small things um, collectively will absolutely be one of those important steps. But, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the question of downtown, has it arrived or is it here or is it the downtown for a great city such as Los Angeles, in a way, to me, seems not really the point anymore. It's, it's more kind of how do we actually strategize in terms of how we actually develop from here on in. Um, I agree, and I think, I think one of the um, turning points was when we, we started looking, and this is true for the city as a whole, and really the region as a whole, not just downtown, but even in the, t- the short time that I've been here since 2004, there's been a shift in that we're looking less for cultural models of inspiration, um, architectural models, urban models. We're looking less to cities like Chicago, New York, London, and Paris, which I think we traditionally looked at, um, even though they don't make a lot of sense for a city like LA. And we're looking more to cities in Latin America. We're getting ideas from, you know, from Medellin, from cities in Brazil. We're getting ideas from... Uh, cities in Asia as well, which make a lot more sense for not only for the demographics of the city and how they're changing, but also just in terms of the, the relative youth of the city and how it's never going to be organized like New York, uh, New York, London, or Paris are. Um, but those kinds of comparisons, I, I, I think, are still tempting, and that leads me to the next um, uh, series of questions I want to ask about Bunker Hill, because if there's one part of downtown that's really hasn't succeeded quite the way at least its planners and boosters might have hoped, it's, it's Grand Avenue, um, despite this incre- incredible collection of buildings by uh, really a murderer's row of architectural celebrities, from um, Isosaki's Mocha Building to uh, Frank Gehry's Disney Hall, of course the great TWP building um, down the down the road to M- Rafael Maneo's Cathedral, and now the latest addition, the um, the high school for the visual and performing arts by Wolf Pricks on the other side of the of the highway. Uh, one of the things that has been a really stubborn problem for Grand Avenue is is trying to activate the street and trying to make it work as a kind of pedestrian. Uh, center destination, despite the success, the real, really the triumph of Disney Hall, despite the um, incredible achievements of the LA Philharmonic in recent years, Grand Avenue doesn't have that feel. So I want to turn it to all of you as designers who think about these issues. Why is that? Why has it been so difficult to make it work in that way? As you were talking, I was I was thinking about just uh, the idea for me that Grand Avenue is sort of two two streets. It's two halves. So it, it, it's the, the street itself is such a kind of a barrier, um, and and it's 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 uh, it's undifferentiated, and uh, you know, and it's it's inaccessible f- physically. So you don't just stroll up onto it and and enjoy the length of it. You, you know, you've got to get to it, and and um, I, I think that's a huge that's a huge challenge. But just this notion that it's sort of you, you're confi- you're confined to one side or the other. And one of the things I would have loved to have seen with this park is that connection and I'm sure you have lots of stories about trying to get a stronger connection to the to the music center to the plaza across Grand um, if, if we could have transformed the street space as well as the park on one side and really that connection to the to the plaza I think that would have been a huge uh a huge leap forward and we're just we're making baby steps to, to do to do to remake the streets in Los Angeles physically 
I mean, I, I think one thing that we were able to do to really kind of connect with the music center was remove all the parking ramps that were once a, a barrier to this park and the, the knowledge that this park was across the street. I know um, people that worked in the, in the area really knew about that, but a lot of other people didn't know and didn't know the park was here. Um, but that was, a, that was one big move, but, but the streets are a whole other issue that um, given the budget of the park and all of that, we really couldn't get into uh, with, with this effort, and I, but we hope that it all continues. Um, about Grand Avenue, though, I'm really thinking that, that you know, it's great to have all these institutions there, but I think one issue is really the sense of scale along Grand Avenue, that, that so many things are really these large institutions, that, and to, to walk by them to the next institution, it's quite a long walk, and you're, you're walking along what's often kind of a, a dead wall of that institution. A lot of the, the spaces, like of the Music Center, the Reyes Plaza, or even the Colburn School, the Inner Courtyard, are, are these really special spaces, but they, they in a way don't contribute necessarily to, to Grand Avenue. And then there's the whole, with Cal Plaza, the whole kind of back pedestrian area that really, really takes everybody off the street um, in a way again. Um, I remember a proposal by uh, Doug Suzman who uh, thought about the center of the road as like a Rambla's or something. And I thought that was really a great idea, this, this kind of opportunity to add this whole other scale to uh, Grand Avenue that would start to mediate those kind of bigger scale of all the buildings. And given that, this was always something I've asked questions about, given that interest and given the history of those kinds of proposals, and that even goes back to the, the so-called all-star team of architects, Frank Gehry and um, the landscape architect, Lawrence Halperin, who lost out to Arthur Erickson on the Cal Plaza project uh, and really produced a, a, a um, proposal for Grand Avenue and Bunker Hill that I think young architects continue to look at for inspiration. Um, was there any discussion, was there ever any possibility of not just making more connections to the street, but actually linking this park in terms of landscape, in terms of additions in the median or elsewhere to the site of the, the bulk of the Grand Avenue development, which is coming in the site of Eli Broad's museum on the other side of Disney Hall? Was that something that ever uh, was seriously on the agenda? Not during the, the, the work on, our park, on the park, but prior to that, when, when Disney Hall first opened, we, we did the streetscape uh, up on Grand Avenue that was su supposed to provide this kind of linkage. Um, you know, we conceived that street really as kind of a, a park-like streetscape or like a garden streetscape with, with clusters of trees as opposed to kind of typical street trees that you would walk along, really you'd walk through these kind of clusters of trees. And unfortunately, that wasn't able to continue south both due to kind of the, uh, the temporary nature of the, the erector set uh, parking lot area that, and that development site, and uh, I think some issues with, with uh, the concert hall and what were the architect's expectations of what would be out front. So, um, Well, and you, you mentioned baby steps, and we talked earlier about the kind of uh, suburban versus urban guidelines for remaking downtown. I mean, I, I lead a lot of walking tours, architectural walking tours, along Grand Avenue, and it's always amazing when I take the group over the freeway to see the high school, and then when we come back, it's this incredibly narrow sidewalk. It's even the basic things that we still haven't really figured out that we haven't... And a um, million plans. There have been a million plans to for do how just you widen that. those exactly. sidewalks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody knows it's a problem, but just doing it. So what are the obstacles? Is it, a, is it a political obstacle? Is it getting a kind of consensus? Is it political leadership to make those kinds of changes happen? 
Well, if we if we just want to talk about the freeway, uh, that 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 particular and Grand yeah, Avenue as a whole. Just uh, the one the one thing with the freeway, obviously, is you're you're, you're over Caltrans right away. So it just everything becomes exponentially more complicated and difficult to to make any changes. But as we know, Park 101 is is being discussed. We're capping the 101 freeway, and we're talking about capping the 101 freeway further north in a couple of locations, and we're talking about capping the 134 in Glendale, and there's a lot of proposals out there. People are willing to try, you know, and take it on. Um, but the but the I think that um, one of the things that uh, has been the uh, elephant on the living room couch for us here in Los Angeles has been the Department of Transportation, and it's always departments of transportation, you know, all over all over that are the problem. Um, and we now have a real shift in the DOT, and we have a new real shift in leadership in the DOT and a real new sense of openness um, for what could occur here. So that's a huge shift. I mean, our Figueroa Corridor project has actually gone from CRA-led to LADOT-led, and I never, ever would have told you that would have been the case, nor that they would have been full partners and advocates for completely remaking Figueroa Street into a multimodal you know, connection. I, w- I would agree with that. And just quickly, for those of you who haven't followed these bureaucratic um, uh, turf battles over the years, the Department of Transportation here in, here in Los Angeles has been um, among the most powerful uh, bureaucracies and really among the most powerful bureaucracies around the nation. They have really called the shots w- in Los Angeles when it comes to how streets are designed. And I would agree with Melanie that there are some signs for optimism there and some encouraging signs in, in terms of the younger leadership that's coming up in DOT and other city agencies that, you know, historically DOT had had um, thought of the streets primarily just as places to move cars from point A to point B and had made every design decision essentially following from that sort of set of priorities. And that means widening the street, um, narrowing the sidewalk in almost every case and there are a whole series of other kinds of changes to the streets that follow from that. And just in the last three or four years, there has been a significant change that now we're thinking about what's called complete streets. We're thinking about all of the various users of our streets and boulevards, not just drivers. The drivers are just one group of users along a street. But you were in the, your two questions, in your two questions, you were saying, is this, 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 this. I would say it's all of the above. Um, I, I mean, three or four point quick in relation to that. One, I will say, the political problem is a major one, and for somebody who grew up in Argentina uh, and in Latin America and so on, it's always strange to me that um, even in the most liberal parts of America, and I would argue LA is a very liberal city, still there is a whole apprehension about public policies or public politics doing that. You can have the Disney Concert Hall, the Ilya Brand Museums of the World, but if nobody take care of the sideway, the street, and so on, which is public domain, is very, very difficult because a single building, they need audiences. So they work for audiences. You don't build pieces of city with audiences. You build them with people. Now, as an architect, I think architect, we should be in the business of audience. Now, the politicians and public policy, they should be in the business of people. And it's a negotiation between the two worlds of that. But it seems to me that because it's always the private funding that is pushing for every agenda, when the, public, the private funding got what they want, they're not going to care. The, the missing thing in Grand is, in Grand Army is density. You don't have people living there, so you move from one destination to another. So you have audiences moving from one to another. So you don't have change of scale. You don't have a, a simple life street like you will have in Barcelona or in Mexico with, and so on. That's one part of the problem. The second part of the problem is... The idea that architecture design planning is a business and is a product and a city can market and export. Like the Dutch did it in one moment, the Danish government is doing it and so on. LA is one of the places in the world that 
all the architecture and design community looks as experimental, innovative ideas, but in our own city, very little of that thing happen. And I think we can rethink that. Like, for example, right now we have the case of the Sixth Street Bridge, a massive operation. They did a small competition. I, I, I agree with you. It's not as bad as it's only pure engineering, but we didn't have like a major international competition. It's a gigantic piece of the city. And maybe we should tell folks who aren't familiar, there's a competition now to replace the Sixth Street Bridge, uh, which has a kind of, what's called a kind of concrete cancer, which means that it's breaking down and needs to be replaced. And there is a design competition now, but your feeling is it's not as ambitious as it ought to be? It's not ambition. It's not the laboratory. It's not experimental enough. We have three, four major schools of architecture in the city. I mean, there are a huge opportunity to rethink how we, how we, but not as a pure abstract artistic endeavor, as a business model, how we support that, how we discuss that, how we have those opportunities. So I think part of the discussion, and also to be fair with Grand Avenue on some of these projects, is also is part of the, I would argue, the private uh, commitment to development is that we need to see in terms around in 10, 15 years, like Brasilia, it took 60 years for the society to accept that that's a good, viable city. If you ask in 1965, 1975, 1985, people will leave if they could. If you ask now, they don't want to change it. They love the city. So it takes a couple of generations also to understand the thing. So I, I'm, I, I'm aware that Grand Avenue had problems. I'm just saying it's also, it's been 12 years since, I mean, of course, the discussion has been going for 50 or 40 years, but in terms of things start to happen, it has been, what, 15 years at the top? So, in a way, it's like, a, like the French Revolution, still too early to say, uh, to a point. That's been said, I think part of the problem is, it's a political problem, it's a policy problem, but also it's a private problem on how we operate and how we intersect the, those relationships, which I think in that argument, the city, is not, we are not as good as we can be. And the last thing I will say politically is something that we forget. The way that the city is divided by district, it makes everything incredibly complicated as well. It's not a New York City with the mayor, the office of the mayor hold a big chunk of power. Here there is, I mean, if you do something which is happening to be in the edge of the two districts, you are on a long ride until the thing gets done. I mean, and we see that with SIARC and many other things. So that part of the political system in that one, I would argue that we need a centralization at that level, at the architecture design level. I think in other things of the community, it's good that we are not centralized. Right, right. And, and I think you raise a really crucial point about this history of L.A. and its reputation for experimentation and innovation and architecture. And, of course, that experimentation, that innovation was almost exclusively in the private realm. It was about residential architecture. And so many of our landmarks, of course, across the whole city are private houses. Um, and the question now is how to take that reputation for experimentation, innovation. This is really a key question for downtown, I think, and apply it to public projects in a city that hasn't done, hasn't seen public projects in that way and has sort of saved its experimentation for the private realm. So all of you having worked on public projects and public projects downtown, is it what Hernan's saying? Is it a question of political leadership and centralizing that kind of power in the way that, say, Michael Bloomberg has done in New York? Um, is it a matter of changing the way we do competitions? Um, how do we bring that kind of innovation from the private realm to the public sector in a part of the city like downtown? And this park is probably a great example of the opportunities and the challenges of trying to do that. 
<laughs> well, it's a hard question right now, too, particularly, right, with, uh, with the state budget and the local budgets being what they are and the public sector being as shrunk as it is and as kind of on the run as it is. I think this is a tough time to have that conversation because I was going to say that I think that there is this huge tension between um, public and private in even in, in all of our open space design, in street space design, um, and it's not, resol- it's, it's not an easy one to, to resolve. Um, we've gotten criticized. We've talked a lot about open space in downtown, kind of on the macro scale. What do we have? What are we missing? How, how might we go forward to, you know, rectify the situation? How might we create open space? And the first thing a lot of people have said to us is, well, don't, aren't you counting the public, the, the private development, the, the private plazas that are part of, that are ubiquitous, um, you know, throughout uh, downtown, Cal Plaza being one of them, you know, um, and... We, you know, it's it's a it's a fraught question. Um, do you count them? And uh, you know, can can they be part of an open space network? And are they freely accessible? And you know, can can it all can all these kinds of spaces work together to create you know a whole? Um, and I'm not sure. Alice, but do you have a thought about that before we turn to Tony? Um, I think there's also a difference though between providing functional. Uh, services and you know in the name of design and then actually talking about innovation and excellence in design and I think that um, when doing public work it really does come down very much so to both the constituency that's um, being affected by the thing that's being built and how um, aware they are of the value of the design itself and and also the political leadership I, I don't I mean I think we can you know there are many I hate to use the word bad, but there are many bad examples of design out there that still, to uh, a public in certain ways, will fulfill certain function, but that doesn't make it great design. So I think there's sort of a, um, it's a very, really complicated question, I think, that you bring up. There's also this kind of traditional perception that good design costs more. Um, Of course, there's a little bit of truth to that. I mean, good design will cost more, but the benefits are immeasurable. So there's a lot of challenges, I think, that um, come into play when you're dealing with uh, public work in particular. Um, private, private projects uh, are just, you know, they're handled differently. There's usually kind of a power structure, um, and it's, you know, that power structure is sort of the, the entity that's really able to make those decisions, and sometimes you get clients um, who are very sophisticated when it comes to the value of design. In the public realm, it's not just what the power structure thinks, but it's also what they're answering to their public for. Um, I think in the work that we've done downtown, it's been really interesting to deal with the um, different um, communities downtown. So we actually worked on a parking structure on Main Street um, for the police department, and um, we dealt with the Little Tokyo community, who actually wanted this park, I think, you know, in the area where the police administration building eventually went. And it was a really interesting experience to kind of um, work with that public. And then now we're working with kind of the artist district, the Barker Block tenants, and um, the whole area around Earth Cafe. And I think that there actually has been a big shift in downtown in general over the past 10 years in terms of the value of design. And I think that's a really great thing. I think actually CyArk's presence in downtown has actually helped that immensely. CyArk is actually coming into the conversation more and more. Everyone knows what CyArk is. And um, so I think that that whole kind of push towards understanding the value of design is actually helping um, the perception by kind of the public companies that are directing these projects. 
So you're um, saying in, in your conversations with those community members, those residents of Barker Block and, and so forth, you're seeing a kind of hunger for an interest in um, ambitious design, ambitious yeah. architecture? Yeah, more, more so than before. Yeah. So I think that's a really great yeah. thing. And, and Tony, last word to you. We just have a couple minutes before we open it up to all of you for questions. Talk a little bit more about these issues in terms of, of the process of getting this park completed. Um, yeah, so, you know, when we began the project, it was it was really a community-based process. I mean, we were brought in as the designers. Um, I think there was some criticism at the time about there not having been a, a design competition, an international design competition. Um, but but we actually, I, I feel like we, we were able to use the community process to kind of be innovative about the design to... Uh, that was very very controlled from a kind of multi kind of client perspective. There was there was uh, you know the the county was was involved, uh, the related companies who who gave up the the fifty million dollars for the park and were also tasked with uh, controlling the process. Uh, and as much as everybody thinks um, fifty million dollars is a lot of money, um, many of the other parks that we were being compared to were were done for you know double triple quadruple the budget so it really wasn't it really wasn't in our eyes everything that we needed to make the park that that was the expectations of everybody that was that had their eyes on it so um, but that process uh, was was interesting answering to multiple clients uh, dealing with these kind of multiple perspectives of how to achieve what we all wanted to achieve what the community wanted to achieve with the dollars we had and um, in a way the, the multiple clients helped focus various efforts and I think pushed us toward being very efficient and being very kind of uh, simple about our, our accomplishments, what we wanted to accomplish and what we could accomplish and how we, we can make those really the best they could be. And the, and the final phase will open next month down at the foot of City Hall, is that yes, correct? Yes, so the final phase, block four, the event lawn opens on October 6th and uh, there'll be a, a celebration kind of open up that the whole park is open at that point. Um, and, and going forward, what are the prospects for improving some of those connections up to the music center and, and along the streets. What are your thoughts about the possibility of funding for that and making that happen over the longer term? There, um, from what we understand, there may be some additional funds available as, as uh, some of the development projects start to happen, and those are, those are coming back online now. Not the major one, but uh, Parcel M, which is a, a residential housing project, is coming online, and there may be additional funds available uh, it's not really certain what it will be used for yet, but, but it will definitely be used for the park. Um, there's obviously possibilities for expansion that everybody's noted. Uh, Zeb had, had noted the possibility the the buildings coming down on either side. These two county buildings yeah, might that, come down. That they might come down, and the park would be able to expand out to, to Temple on the north and First Street on the south, and that would be What's your guess about that? You think that's a realistic possibility given it's, the political challenges that would be involved? I'd say it's longer term, but I think it's, I think it's a real possibility for the future that one day this will be an entire block of park, for sure. That would make a dramatic sure. change in this park. I think we, um, could, all, we could all agree. Okay, so um, let's turn it to all of you for some questions. Thank you, panelists. I was just wondering about supermarkets, if you guys can touch upon um, markets in downtown. Along with schools and open space, supermarkets are absolutely a necessity. <laughs> So I can tell you that when the Ralphs opened, uh, the LA Times covered it like it was the, the second coming, um, which 
says something about the LA Times and something about downtown, but there was certainly no shortage of coverage in our paper when that supermarket opened. Well, and wouldn't you just call them? I mean, I would say they're a safe bet, too. That Ralph's is the highest grossing, you know, service deli in the chain, right? And I mean, it's it, they, they surpass people's wildest expectations, so they should be a no-brainer, but... It's it's been it's been something that I know the the downtown um, bid has been working to focus on for a long time and and extensive outreach. So it's just the next slot has to find its way. And we do have some other retail uh, options coming in. The Target that will open, which in terms of the suburban urban divide is interesting because Target and Walmart too are looking at new kinds of designs that will will fit a more urban model instead of uh, always assuming they can have seventy five you know uh, parking spaces around every store. I wanted to ask you about the Skid Row situation. How you think downtown is going to grow around it, through it, uh, how it's going to integrate with the rest of downtown. Alice, you've you worked close to that part of downtown. Do you want to talk about that a little? Um, hmm, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, Skid Row is such a part of downtown and the services that are provided are kind of necessary. So I don't really see it going away or even that we would want it to go away. Um, but, you know, it's an ongoing question. My office is just a couple of blocks away from Skid Row, and we've been looking at office buildings in Skid Row and, or in that neighborhood. And um, so there's always kind of conceptual acceptance of this condition, and then there's the kind of reality check of, you know, we need to, be, you know, we need to feel safe. So, you know, that's a tough one. Spoken about Spring, Spring, Spring Street and the South End of Broadway as being examples of areas that have done very well but do you think that there's anything in those areas that could stand uh, to be improved that uh, could also lay some groundwork for making other parts of downtown LA better? I, I think the thing that I would point to with regard to Broadway um, that's, that has helped it to, to take off the way that it has, the thing that has impressed me by, and, and people have really rolled their eyes about the Bringing Back Broadway initiative and um, you know, people have been trying to bring back Broadway for, for decades, right? But I think that for me, the difference in this time has been uh, the effort around the, the physical, the street space itself, the streetscape, the design, the community design ordinance that's gone in and the, the efforts to really look at private development, the form of private development and improvements. Um, and then the real championing of business and really trying to bring people, you know, onto that street to fill up those spaces and really attract people to the spaces. And it, so I would say um, that we've got, we've got to keep our champions. Um, and there was a champion on Spring Street, too. You know, I mean, if Gilmore hadn't been around back in the day uh, leading the charge, you know, and if others, to, 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 for other people to follow, um, that I don't think that, uh, what would have occurred there in the old bank district would have occurred. Uh, it obviously wouldn't have. Um, so I think uh, I think we've got to keep um, championing, and I think we've got to support the kind of grassroots kinds of um, uh, initiatives that have occurred to really enliven the spaces that are that we have. So, for instance, I'm thinking of Art Walk, um, and I'm sure there are a lot of opinions about Art Walk among the residents. Um, but you know that was something that has really turned. Um, changed people's opinions of downtown as a destination and a place that you want to be. Uh, so I think just continuing to enliven these spaces with, um, with activity as well as uh, 
uh, tenants and, and yeah. residents. And I would just add to that, we haven't mentioned the adaptive reuse ordinance as a kind of catalyst for so many of the changes and really the revival of downtown arguably goes back to that policy change. So looking for those kinds of policy but, changes that can help drive development. And, and But I think it's important when we talk about improvement that uh, that we embrace the diversity that downtown brings. And like, uh, like don't get me wrong, I want Broadway to be full and spring and so on, but I don't want them necessarily to change their character. Because sometimes when we talk about improvement, it's to try to desnaturalize them into something else. And I think downtown is big enough to absorb multiple layers. So I, I'm, I'm totally okay with what Broadway is right now. If we can increase, and spring already have a different character, and the main has a different character, and fourth, third, second in between, ever bring another character. And I think I'm for that idea of multiple density, multiple layers, uh, and not the idea that it need to be cleaned up in a particular way or it need to be structured in a particular way. Because I, I think to me that that will be the end of the last 10 years of downtown coming up, is the idea that we are allowed to embrace that multiculture, multi-density, multi-social, multi-money, blah, 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 blah. I think that is absolutely crucial. And when we talk about improvement, it's not about the idea that we're going to do a facelift or a transformation of makeup, which I don't think any of us we are advocating. I think we are advocating for that. Right. That no, the question of gentrification. With the coming of the new field that's coming or the new stadium, how will that change the character of the city of life? Will it? And what kind of adjustments will it need to make in order to be able to embrace all the traffic that's going to be coming in from both from public and from more cars coming in or people wanting to come into downtown and to change the culture of the local people that live here. Farmer's Field. I was hoping somebody would ask a Farmer's Field question. Um, I think the only thing we, at least I can give you is an educated guess. Um, first of all, I hope we get a decent team. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, to me, again, um, I'm for one, I'm an advocate, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I know when you are in the car, this doesn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> but I think to me that traffic jam and low, uh, high density of traffic, I think it creates different opportunities. And, that's, uh, and, and this goes back to what Christopher mentioned. If, if we stop looking at Paris, London, and New York, and we start to look at Medellin, and Bogota, mm -hmm. and Bangkok, and we see the opportunities that high density traffic will create, it changes the culture of an area. And, if, if the traffic is so bad and the people after the game have to stay two or three hours because they, they want to avoid the traffic, other opportunities start to happen. Now, if we create another of this stadium which gazillion parking lot around and nothing else, I think then it's a missed opportunity. If we understand and we learn from the old model of stadiums embedded in the, in the fabric of the city and the European, even New York, like Madison Square Garden or the Yankee Stadium, or the one I grew up in Argentina with the stadiums in the middle of the city and they are not afraid to embrace the tissue of the city and we don't try to make it again into a suburban, suburban stadium in the middle of downtown LA. If we do that, I think we are, we, we are in trouble. If we embrace it that it should be a urban stadium that it, it, it brings a whole, other a whole series of possibilities and commerce and activity and so on, then I think it's an interesting opportunity. But again, Part of the problem, again, is uh, this is so much about pure public, uh, private funding that I, I, I think the debate, and also, and I want to say this with all due respect to the American democratic process, I think we confuse sometimes public debate with neighborhood commissions. When I'm talking about public debate, I'm talking about an expert public debate. 
people from different tendencies about the problem of design, the urban planning, and so on, and not necessarily just a vote in the city council of this and that, that sometimes we confuse the political public debate right, with right. the design and expert public debate. I'm advocating for the second one in, co in coordination with the first one. And Melanie, you've been involved in some of those discussions, so give us your perspective on the farmer's field debate. Right, so that public debate took about... 12 hours yesterday yeah. at the at planning commission we were there the whole day um, and, the, and the project was approved um, to move to the next step to move to council um, yeah I think farmers field is a huge opportunity um, and it, it's not being designed in the suburban model it is a very urban model and there isn't a lot of parking so I think a way it's going to change it has to change Los Angeles is again we've got to provide more choices and so there has to be choice and access to that to that place. And so we've been working on a public space plan with um, Gell Architects out of Copenhagen, um, and looking at the the different ways in which we can encourage people to travel to to that site um, by 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 on foot, by bike, uh, as a transit rider, and as a person in a, in a vehicle. Um, so, you know, that, that is being, being given serious consideration. There's serious pressure being put on that project to be different, to perform differently, um, and to, be, to create a different place. I think the other opportunity that's going to occur with, with, that, um, with that project, how many people here know what Gilbert Lindsay Plaza is or have ever heard of it? So three hands, um, four hands. So Gilbert Lindsay Plaza is a three and a half, four and a half acre um, public space that's in front of the convention center now at Fig and Pico, completely unutilized. Um, it's basically right now um, bus drop off, taxi, uh, you know, unused space. Um, so that's going to be completely remade, and that's that's a front door for both the community and for folks who are going to attend to be at conventions or to be at Staples Center to be at at Farmers Field, and a draw for you know a, a place that people can access that whole space um, and a sequence of spaces through. So I think that's a huge that will be a huge change too. My question is: Don't you think, as architects and politicians and community leaders, we should consider? The 99% that we should have uh, government subsidized cafes, uh, restaurants, uh, places for social dancing. Uh. Any thoughts about that? That question of how to activate these spaces that we spend so much time and money designing. And that's been an issue. I mean, this, is, this discussion tonight is an example of, of one part of that effort here. Yeah, I mean, I think with the park, you know, our, our, one of our real ideas was how does this park connect with everybody? How do we make it active? And one of the from the start, um, even though we didn't have an operator until uh, almost the park opened, uh, the real idea was that programming would provide uh, many of the opportunities for how to get people here and like how we got all of you here tonight. So um, that said, um, you know the design itself was was kept relatively simple and open and provided these spaces that at times may seem empty, but at other times like tonight are full of people that have come to participate in a particular event. Uh, some of you might have come here for the first time tonight, and now you know about the park, and you might come back for for another trip another time. So I think programming really offers that opportunity to bring uh, unique experiences to to L.A. and provide those opportunities for introductions to to the public spaces. And along those lines, let me ask the audience a question: How many of you, for how many of you, is this the first your first visit to Grand Park tonight? And how many of you had been here before? Okay, maybe a few more had already been here, but pretty, pretty evenly split. Interesting. 
Just to plug your project too, I think that pro what we're seeing more and more in terms of our design process is that um, we're starting the programming and we're starting to activate spaces as we design them. So you started with a very interactive design process, um, unusual and probably cutting edge um, at the time for this, this project and you were talking about that. Um, and interactive in a different way, taking that to a new level. And that's something we're trying to bring to projects. Um, the technical term, uh, there's this new technical term, tactical urbanism, and the idea that I like to call it seeing is believing. Um, just this idea that you, you bring spaces to life and you test them, and you do that as part of your design process as opposed to just showing people plans or you know renderings, whatever. Um, so I think that's that's a way too that we can um, activate start start really early on and, and continue. When you mentioned capping the freeways, I had to Google it because I didn't know what that was. But it sounds really exciting. I thought I said cat parks. Right? Yeah, yeah, I had no idea. So anyway, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about any of you about the kinds of proposals that might affect the downtown area to give us more green space, or even just let your imagine run wild, imagination run wild. Let us know what you're thinking. Do you, I'll just. Do you want to talk about Park 101, or do you just just introduce just the notion that behind? So the the concept of Park 101, and it's there have been many forms, many iterations of this idea for a number of decades. I think um, the really putting a deck so uh, right over the freeway, um, and it can it could have many different forms. You know, there could be a deck between two of the bridges that exist now. Or there could be a deck that goes from Union Station to the Cathedral, which is really actually the whole scheme that's being proposed. And, uh, you know, it could take many different forms, from green space to gathering space to amphitheater to whatever it is. In this case, and they, there's usually a different reason. You know, there's a different driving force behind these proposals. Park 101, there's always been this driving notion of repairing the damage of the 101 freeway, the cutoff of the Civic Center from Union Station and from the Pueblo, from the, the original heart of the city. So it's an idea about repairing that fabric. And usually projects and proposals like that are all about repairing the fabric. Ventura wants to, for instance, um, you know, their proposal is called Beach Plus Town equals Beach Town. So they want to deck over the 101 there and better connect the city back to the beach. It's those kinds of ideas. And there's an experiment along those lines. It's a little further along in Dallas where Dallas is capping um, a significant portion of sunken freeway uh, just next to its arts district and, and ju with just the same goals to reconnect two parts of the city that had been uh, cut apart by, that had been separated by this um, freeway. And a lot of cities are looking at doing just that. Seattle uh, in its freeway park uh, for those of you who know Seattle, is kind of an early example with a park on top by, by Larry Halperin. Um, but a number of cities are looking at this. The, it, it, it's a kind of project that has tremendous potential, but it's also tremendously expensive um, per mile to kind of create that new um, uh, green space at, uh, on top of freeways. So I was curious if any of our panelists have had their hopes or aspirations for L.A. downtown significantly changed by the cutting of community redevelopment funds from the state. The Community Redevelopment Agency, which um, I guess is sort of dead, still has um, a local development authority, has been renamed, and I think that the city right now is trying to figure out the alternative to uh, the current or the, the recently current um, redevelopment authorities that we have. So redevelopment itself is by no means dead. It's just how it gets restructured and streamlined and um, um, can perhaps do more for uh, less, I think. So it's, I don't think it's a totally pessimistic outlook. 
it was something that the agency really did. They had they, they put forward a really concerted effort every year, for instance, to go after Metro Call for Projects dollars, to do Prop 84 for urban greening. Um, those the, so that's a and and the city didn't have hasn't had the resources to put into that. That's an absolute must for a component of funding. You know this public infrastructure that we're talking about. And I think um, we I hope to see that transition and that the cities really build their capacity for seeking um, grant dollars because I think that's a big a big loss. One of the big losses. Hi, my name is Wendy Lynn. I live in Little Tokyo right now, probably a block away from where Alice's office is. Um, and I'm also pregnant with my first child, which is making us look at downtown in kind of a different lens. So I just wanted to say, you know, as other people are kind of facing these challenges as well, um, how do you see downtown changing in terms of, you know, housing design and safety and, and schools as well for families who decide to live here? A school keeps coming back. It seems to be one of the big debts that still downtown has. Um, uh, I'm not so sure that it's clear how that's going to be solved. I mean, there is, again, I think there's a problem of densities that is still doesn't ring the bell enough how many schools need it. And part of the trick, I mean, anybody who is a parent knows how much a good school can trigger in developing an area. I mean, if you have a good school, automatically that neighborhood becomes better than what it was. So it seems to me that that could be like a really interesting idea to start to work on it. But... Again, I would advocate also for the opportunity, to, if we're going to do that, to rethink what the proper public school should be, what is the proper design for it, what the public school should be in a place like downtown, which I think is different than the West Hollywood or Beverly Hills, or what kind of condition will do. Now, in terms of the safety you're asking, I only can talk from my personal experience. I mean, I, I always feel like downtown is, is pretty safe in terms of compare with the downtown any major metropolitan city that I know. So I think in terms of safety, I think it's part, again, of the community and people feeling that they belong to it. And I think at the end of the day, that, that's what makes an area safe or not. It's not so much how many police you have in the street or not. It's how much the community feel engaged with the neighborhood and the part of the city that belongs to them. And in that sense, I feel like in, 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 in that aspect, I would say downtown is in the right track. I mean, I, I, I don't see that as a major problem. As far as we can keep creating the conditions for people to want to live here. So, again, to me, it goes always back to the problem of density. I think if you have enough density, the safety is easier than if you have pockets of low density or nothing happened in between parts. So, uh, if, you, if you ask me in relation to all that, I think part of the challenge for downtown is still we have a lot of pockets of dead space between the different downtowns that we're talking about. And I think... For that, we need, we need to figure it out and to plan fairly quickly what we want to do with that. And I think having a couple of public schools to anchor those transformations is not a bad idea in every aspect from the developer's point of view, from the public policy point of view, from being a parent. So I think in that sense, a school has that power. I mean, to have to create that. I mean, how many people we know, people that move from neighborhood just to give their, school, their kids a better chance to go to better schools? So... Um, I really, I, I, for the love of me, I, I don't understand why sometimes politicians don't see or public school, I mean, whatever bureaucratic machine is in charge of that, how they don't see that as a developing, as a developing, as a, as a developer tool, more than anything else. And I think that is something that you can, we can create partners with developers, and I think we do in many places. But if somebody says, okay, you want to build a couple of office towers, great, but help us build a model school, then it will help you to sell the units that you're making. 
Right. I mean, he's, right. I mean, he's not only stable in LA Live and the whole thing that would trigger that. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, schools are not part of the community benefits, I mean, uh, that, yeah. that are being exacted from Farmer's Field. It's, it's parks, um, it's planning, um, it's jobs, job training, you know, there's those components, but schools, you know, that's a separate entity, they're not. Like, when you look in the European stadiums like Barcelona and Real Madrid, they all have their own schools in the stadium. Because they don't use it all the time. Like, I mean, you have a, a stadium, you have a lot of, I mean, they literally they have physical schools in the stadium structure. And it's all related to physical activities and stuff like that. And they have high school and even college for educations of kinesiology and all that. All activities, education related to sports. Which here we always tend to separate so much because they are franchises. They are not clubs. I mean, they are not part of... It's not the sense of... I mean, and I think to me there is a lot of things to be done that it can be brought to the table in the, in, in the discussion. Then I think we still think too much inside the box. That this is one thing, this is another thing. And... Again, this is the, the, let's say, my American part is a school seems like a good idea for business, aside that it's great for culture and society and all that. I think people will make more money too, which it seems to be that once in a while is the only way that became very right, clear. Right, right. And Alice? Uh, well, I was just going to say, I think actually downtown in some ways is the perfect incubator to you know, look at some of these challenges. The school idea, the thing that Hernan just said is really interesting. You have all of these private institutions here which aren't used very much of the day. I mean, if you think about a performance at Walt Disney Concert Hall and what's happening during the rest of the day, and you could have kind of a new model of schools kind of utilizing the adaptive reuse ordinance, borrowing all of these, all, all, you know, many different types of spaces from the institutions that already exist here, um, and a lot of sort of sharing going on. And I think that's one of the really interesting potentials of downtown um, there's a lot of, you know, there's the whole warehouse district and what, what the potential is of that, the industrial district, and then there's all of the private institutions and, you know, the parks also. And so schools, um, you know, it, the possibilities are kind of mind-boggling to think about how schools can actually be plugged into the system that we have already existing downtown. And begun to reactivate uh, the community. Hi, uh, Patrick Atwater. In the near future, when we're all driving around our Google self-driving cars, How's, uh, how's that going to change how we need to conceptualize downtown and, I guess, L.A. more broadly? Good question. Did everybody hear in the back? The question was about self-driving cars, changes in automobile technology, and how that might affect the, the cityscape, the streets, the highways of downtown. Well, hopefully all their destinations are set for downtown, and uh, we can have everybody down here being active. Probably will be better looking. <laughs> we can only hope. Um, I don't know. I, I always think that technology is important at a certain level, but I, uh, to me, cities and urban planning, architecture design, it remains a fundamental humanist problem. So as much as technology changes, and, uh, and it does change us, there are certain fundamental aspects that it really doesn't change it, and I think there are certain principles about it that it will remain. To me, it's much more how we incorporate it as another layer that they will bring to the table, and hopefully that would allow us to have more freedom to play with other elements, but I don't know. I mean, I, I never, I mean, even somebody who is so embedded in new technology, I never put so much faith in technology. I'm still waiting for my flying backpack from NASA in the 70s, and we are in 2012. I haven't got it yet. So I don't know. I don't think technology moves as fast as we think. I think it moves very fast to a point, but then it stops moving. Like, if you look at airplanes, we have been flying in the same planes for 40 years. And, and I mean, um, we have the new iPhone 5, and 
it doesn't seem to me moving that fast as we thought, and it's cool in certain things, but uh, I don't know. I think it's, it's important to add this as another layer, but I will not overplay their hand in one terms of what it will do to the cities, because I'm not so sure that it's always as fast as we think it is. And whether we like it or not, one of the things I love about architecture is super slow, no matter what. <laughs> and it doesn't seem to be getting much faster. And in, in a way, I think it used to frustrate me more. There is something good about that. There are that. benefits about that in a, yeah. in a society that's otherwise changing so rapidly. So with that, let me first thank the panelists. Let me thank Zocalo and the Music Center for organizing this event. And thanks to all of you for coming out.